0: Good morning, good evening, good afternoon to everybody. My name is Mark Mandel. I'm here today with my partner in crime, Kai Koenig, and this is another episode of Two Developers Down Under. It's been a little bit of a hiatus, but uh, we're back again with another episode. How are you doing today, Kai?
1: I'm doing fine, Mark. How are you?
0: I'm very, very well. It's, uh, it's uh, 20 past 7 in the morning, so it's actually a bit of a late one for me, which is nice.
1: Yeah, see, I got up at 4.45 my time today, <laughs> Because I did a presentation on um, Flex, Maven, and Flex Mojos for the Space City Adobe user group in Houston.
0: Oh, geez. That's a fun one.
1: I mean, it was actually quite fun. But, you know, like getting up for a 5 a.m. presentation, (laughs) that was some sort of not that fun.
0: (laughs) It's not that fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My wife gets mad at me when I get up at six, which I do on a regular basis. Um, I can imagine getting up at five. Mustn't have been a too popular popular choice in your household.
1: Oh, uh, the funny thing is actually, Diana pretty much slept through. But yep. all of, I, I closed the door of my office behind me, obviously because I was yep. talking. And um, all of a sudden, the cat started scratching at my door because if she <laughs> wanted to get in. It's like, oh, really? Oh, yeah. No. Yeah, you're
0: up. It's time. Come on, let's let's muck about. What's yeah. going on? <laughs> Speaking speaking of cats, I just wanted to bring it up. Completely non tech related, uh, we have a new dog in our house, and she's, she's actually really cute. <laughs> she's been with us for four weeks. Yeah, I'll put I'll put a link up to uh, my wife's blog, who's got lots of wonderful pictures of her. She's a, yeah, she's fast asleep at my feet at the moment. She's a a rescue bull mastiff cross, and uh, she's a she's a lovely little dog. But uh, very happy to have her, and she is completely asleep at the moment, even though I'm talking about her. <laughs> Which is great, great fun.
1: Yeah, animals are great fun to have. Actually, I think
0: I think so, and especially, I mean, especially working from home as well. You know, both my wife and I work from home, so it's lovely having the comp- companionship. And it's also nice, you know, she's a rescue dog, so we've got the time to spend on her and, and sort of work through some of her issues and stuff. So, I yep. forget yeah, it was a, it was a good idea to do. So,
1: well
0: done, but, yeah, lots of fun. I I grew up with dogs, so I'm very very excited.
1: See, I'm awesome. more, I'm more of a cat person. I like dogs, but I wouldn't probably get my own dog, really. But yeah, you know, get that. cats are awesome.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think you and I are going to kind of disagree on that one, especially like <laughs> yeah. like Mac and Linux, and and you know, cats versus dogs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. cats are nice. I don't mind cats, but. A real pet's a dog. I mean, I think that's just kind of the situation that really exists there. <laughs> yeah, obviously. Sure. Yeah. Whatever yeah, you think, Mark. Because I'm right and you're wrong. I mean, that's just, that's just pretty much what it comes to. Yep. It. When, you know,
1: fine.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and to all of you people who have cats out there, I'm, I'm, I hope that that's good for you and that you you like that. Yeah. We do.
1: So... What else did happen today? Well, what did okay. happen today, actually, in the past? I've yeah. got two things. Um, yep. I've actually got three things. Um, 1918, first airmail service in Canada, which oh. is, you know, not really super exciting, but it's just interesting for me because of aviation stuff. 1938, pieces of a meteor crashed into uh, or landed near um, Chicora, Pennsylvania, very interesting, and 1948 start of the Berlin blockade when basically the um, Soviet Union uh, cut off West Berlin from you know the Western Allies after World War Two. Yeah. So what did you find?
0: What did I find? I think the most exciting one I found today is it's actually the birthday of Jack Dempsey, um, who was a revolutionary boxer back in the 1920s and one of the first people i would say that actually wrote a book on boxing um being someone who studied martial arts for a very long time that's actually really exciting for me um he he was a very small guy who took on a lot of very big guys and soundly beat them uh he was it was actually really really impressive especially for the 1920s where you know athletics isn't quite at the stage that it was now he was doing some really crazy and revolutionary things so he's a he's a big uh, uh, a big sort of, I don't know if here is the right word, but someone someone I've followed for a while and pretty pretty cool stuff that for me. I don't know if anyone else follows boxing like that. Um, I can't think I've found anything else that was particularly uh, amazing. Napoleon invaded Russia today. It's their oh. 199th anniversary okay. Interesting. in 1812. Oh, and Picasso's first exhibition Opens today in uh, 1901 It's the 110th anniversary That's pretty cool I've, I've been a big fan of Picasso's work Particularly his sculpture work For quite a while as well mm, okay So there we go There's some random stuff today
1: <laughs> Yes, every time So, um, why are we that late With the podcast, actually? I mean, we, we just realised When we started the recording That it's nearly been four weeks Yep Which is quite shocking um, I can't even nail it down to a particular reason. In the last ten days, I, I at least was quite busy, and I was also away um, yep. at a client. And you've been traveling as well, right? So it was yep. a bit hard to really get together. And then this was the pretty much first opportunity after I had to bail and postpone our <laughs> first effort to record it on Wednesday afternoon or Thursday yeah. afternoon. I don't know.
0: But these things happen. And, yeah, uh... exactly. Basically, we suck, but that's okay. We're here now, that's and I think that's fine. what's important.
1: And it's number nine. We are close to our first anniversary, so to say.
0: Oh, oh, next one will be number ten. Oh, that's actually really exciting. I didn't think about it that way. Yeah, because
1: nine, you know, is the number before ten. That's
0: yeah. Thanks, thanks. Next okay. year, okay. we tell me Thursdays before Friday, and exactly. Friday Saturday, and suddenly I've just become Rebecca Black. We could, okay, we great. Could sing a song about
1: you know. <laughs> uh, I don't even get. I don't even go there. Not going to end well. <laughs>
0: I have this now now I have this this desire to have you with your accent <laughs> sing Friday 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 for me just because I think it would be hysterical. No,
1: I will not do that. We could come up with, you know, an equivalent bad song about the numbers 9 10 11 or something like that if you well, like.
0: like. Monday, Monday Monday, everyone hates Monday.
1: Oh, go away.
0: <laughs> they took that down from YouTube, I think. I don't really? know why. Yeah, I can't, I, uh, I vaguely remember seeing a headline or something saying that they'd taken it down from YouTube for some reason.
1: Yeah, whatever. I couldn't care less, to be honest, really.
0: <laughs> so, uh, possibly on to more technical things?
1: Yeah, maybe. We could do that. Um, what's on our list? Oh, look. Ray Kempton joined the Adobe Evangelist team. Some gossip. Oh, well, it's not gossip. It's official
0: now, but. (laughs) It's not really gossip, no. (laughs) Everyone knows about it because he announced it. Uh, A big congratulations to Ray. Um, Totally. I have have a strange feeling that that he's been trying to get there and they've been trying to get him for a very long time. Um, I wouldn't be shocked if that was the case. So uh, I think that's probably uh, a little golf clap. Is in order <laughs> for getting that sort of stuff together, I think Ray's going to be a great addition and uh, a little bit bummed it's not Cold Fusion, but I'm sure he's going to be pushing that in a lot of directions too, so I can't really complain too much. And basically, getting him involved in any level, I think, is going to be awesome.
1: Yeah, that's actually what surprised me a bit you know, that he joined as a flash platform evangelist basically. Yep. Um, not in a negative way, you know, like I'm pretty sure he can do really great things on that yep. end. Um, But with his experience and standing in the Fusion community, I would have at least sort of expected that he becomes a Fusion evangelist.
0: I'd be willing to bet that it's a headcount issue. Yeah. That's what I'd be willing to bet. Could very well be.
1: And particularly because I think... um, you know, from what I what I gather, he's probably the replacement. You know, from a headcount point of view, for James Ward, who recently um, left Adobe and started with Salesforce, um, and he I, was a flash platform evangelist.
0: Yep. Yeah. So I, I'd be yeah, I'd be really about yeah headcount issue, and then it's just a case of okay, we've got room for him. Let's just fit him in wherever we can, and then maybe we can move him from there if we want to, or who knows? I mean, I can't I can't speak to Adobe. Yeah. But,
1: uh, I really like the statement on his blog where he said. Um, you know, I will be the evangelist who's not going to use PHP for any demo.
0: <laughs> nice. Yes, I think that's wonderful. I yeah. can't complain about that exactly. So uh, yeah, uh, definitely huge congratulations to, to Ray. I think that's uh, really, really exciting stuff.
1: Yeah, totally agree.
0: So that's, that's very cool.
1: So what else do we have? Oh, I think there's one topic that um, probably you are quite keen to discuss.
0: Turntable.fm.
1: <laughs> I meant something else. But we can also talk about Turntable.fm, which I have no idea what it is.
0: Yeah, turntable.fm is awesome. Um, you, uh, yeah, Turntable.fm lets you in. It's one. Unfortunately, it's sort of you have to be logged into Facebook applications. It's just using Facebook's graph to allow like logins and stuff. So if you're, it's beta at the moment. So if you want, you have a friend that's part of the beta for Turntable.fm, then you can get let in. And I don't know who my friend is that actually. It's part of it, but it let me in. TurnTable.fm is awesome. Basically, um, it's a streaming music service, but you go into a room and there's five DJs up the front. And anyone can DJ if the slot's open. You just grab the slot and it goes a song to each DJ and it just goes down the line and then starts all over again. So you get a room with a certain theme and then there's a whole bunch of listeners. And then if you like the song, you click the awesome button and your little avatar bobs its head. But if you don't like the song, you hit lame. And then if enough people hit lame, then it skips the song, and goes to the next person. Okay. So you get like a little DJ score, and, you know, it's it becomes very interactive, you know, with, if you're DJing with the people who are in the room and the other people you're DJing with. So you'll play a song that the other person's playing. It's basically like the online version of sitting around with your friends playing songs. But you have access to this huge streaming media library that they have. They let you upload music to if, they, if you haven't got it. I'm not quite sure exactly how that works. But it's just a lot of fun. And if you're looking to, you know, discover music and stuff in an environment where you can chat with people, it's, it's, it's just ridiculous fun. It is actually ridiculous fun.
1: Hmm, okay.
0: I actually really, to- I really like it. I really, really like it.
1: Need to give that a try then, maybe.
0: <laughs> so I think the, the topic you want to discuss that uh, I was probably dodging around is the fact that uh, in the latest version of Air, Linux support has been uh, dropped or possibly... You know, I don't know if "drops" is necessarily the right word, but maybe thrown up in the air to see who's going to catch it. <laughs> And it may hit the floor, it may not. Um, just so that I read this properly from the FAQ. Here we go. Lifetime air for Linux desktop downloads represent less than 0.5% of total air desktop downloads, uh, which number over 450 million. Uh, we've decided to change our distribution model for Linux and direct these resources towards our mobile efforts. Uh, we continue to provide partners the opportunity to license source code through the open screen project. You can download air 2.6, the latest version to support Linux in the archive build page. So basically they've gone, we've got some open screen people. It's up to them to support Linux. We're not doing it anymore.
1: Pretty much. That's what it is. And, you know, like looking at those download numbers, um, to be honest, I can see why, to a certain extent, right? If you have a limit, a limited set of resources, and zero point five of your users uh, of a certain population, you obviously have to think about are those resources directed, you know, to the right thing. That, I mean, that's just yes. that's just what I it is. I understand that you know, on the, on on the glance of things, right? Yeah. Um, it is still sad from my point of view because. I think having air for Linux is or having, having a truly cross platform air environment across Linux, Mac and windows was some sort of a really nice way to sell air as a platform. Agreed. And now it's a platform across, you know, windows and Mac and mobile to be fair. Yep. Um, That changes things a little bit. Realistically, Again, you know, given the, the the tiny numbers of Linux downloads, um, I wonder if there will be a noticeable impact. Really, given how, that not many people use Linux as the desktop as the desktop computers in the first place. You yeah. know, it's yeah, it's unfortunate, yeah. but it's just what it is, basically. Um,
0: it's, I think there's a few interesting points to be made through here as well. Um, one of which I think you'll find that the majority of Linux desktop users are using 64-bit. Installing Air on 64-bit Painf- is like painful. Ryan. really painful. Yeah. Really, really painful. You can do it. You have to follow 15 steps, but you get through it. So to turn around and say, hey, we've produced this thing that's really painful to install, but we're not going to support it anymore because nobody installed it, sort of set, you know, it's sort of, you know, you're setting up the deck to kind of fail in the first place, which doesn't make me incredibly happy. Um, I think there's there's a few products that I use, mainly things like Balsamic, for example, Uh, for while I was using TweetDeck. I had to have a look, actually. Um, Prezi.com, which I use for my presentations. Mm -hmm. A few things like that that I've specifically grabbed because I need them as developer tools. And I think we're set up so that Linux users and other users could use them quite easily. Um, Now, well, may not be available to me. I know uh, the guy that runs Balsamic has specifically said, hey, we're only targeting 2.5 for air um, we're not going to go above that now that also becomes fun because I think uh, Adobe's also said well we're not releasing security releases for anything below 2.7 anymore either
1: that will at least happen at some stage you can you can yeah. do that basically because if they be you now cut support that's usually what happens if you know new yeah. versions come out uh, it's and it's an interesting interesting problem, obviously, because even though, for example, the Balsami guy says, "You say we, we just you know go with Air 2.5 and we will yeah. publish against the Air 2.5 um, API." That's all well well and good, but you know at some stage even they yeah. might be forced to, to publish up. against whatever Air 2.8 or 3.0 for yep. whatever reason, really. And then you know at that stage your, your support is basically lost. Yeah. So you wonder if those guys actually, you know, would move to a different platform in the future, which I don't know really. I mean, that it might actually depend on their own statistics, right? How many people on Linux, Mac, Windows buy their software, which is built on Air?
0: That's an interesting one. And what
1: what's the impact? You know, if you have thirty percent of your customers running on Linux, and you know, suddenly you can't anymore. Suddenly can't anymore. You might think uh, maybe actually we do something else then, right? Yeah. And that I could get... have a follow a follow up effect on other platforms, yeah. obviously.
0: If I was if I was someone like that, like say so someone like the World Summit guys or, or anyone who runs that sort of stuff, I'd be pretty upset as a vendor of a product that caters to a large demographic. I'd be pretty upset because suddenly you've just cut off, you know, you cut off a leg. You know, suddenly I don't have it, you know, especially if I've got a developer tool where a lot of the developers, well, so a lot of Linux people are developers. Um,
1: the funny thing is actually, it's particular, particularly Balsamic it's not really a developer tool anymore. You know, I, yeah. I see so many people using it who yeah. are not developers, who are, you know, some business analyst people or who, well. are, who work in marketing teams. At one of my clients, basically, the whole marketing team uses balsamic, and it's like, yep. wow, wow! You know, it's
0: like it's a huge, like it's got a huge penetration. It's actually really yeah. impressive what they've done with it. So um, it's
1: it's definitely a demographic beyond developers. Yeah, but then again, you know, if you go into 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 businesses and um, corporations, you'll probably find most of the people use Windows, and a few yeah. would use Mac. So, yeah. yeah, I don't know. It's really hard to say without actually seeing proper figures.
0: The one, the one thing that kind of I'm going to be, it's going to be interesting to see what the fallout is. I, I assume you know, if you're doing continuous integration, mm. I would mm-hmm. expect that nine times out of ten, you're probably running it on a Linux server. Yeah, I mean it's cheap, it's easy, you can do it. Can't do that anymore. You have to be running like well, generally now, I guess you're probably going to run Windows. I mean that's it.
1: That is Unless actually can, very interesting. I didn't think about that at all so far. Yeah.
0: So if, you, if you're doing continuous integration with your Air development, you can't run that on a Linux server anymore. And I think you'd find that most shops do that because it's just, you know, the, you run a Linux server. I mean, nine times out of 10 people do that. You might run it on Windows already, but generally speaking, now you don't have a choice. Mm. Uh, unless you're a Microsoft partner, you know, now you have some sort of overhead or part of the development network or whatever. It gives you like a whole bunch of free stuff.
1: And besides um, that, I mean, running a continuous integration server on Windows is... Reasonably painful as such.
0: Oh really? I've never actually done it. I always run. Oh, I it, just
1: so. wouldn't want to do it. I'm. Yeah. Nah. I mean, just the fact that you don't have a proper shell and you have to install SICKVIM yeah. and go through jump through yeah. a bunch of hoops to get all that stuff running—it's just not nice.
0: Yeah. So that's just that's just a weird one, um, and I'd also I'd also pretty much put it down to a trust issue. You know, the premise of Air what? was, and maybe this might may not make me. Particularly popular among certain Adobe crew, which is, I'll put this out there, but Aero's promise was, you know, I've got a t shirt that says, you know, you know, Aira's everywhere. Well, and, but you know, like, well, okay.
1: I, I, I hear no. what you're saying, but you know, the, the fact that you have a t shirt is not really, you know, proof. <laughs>
0: okay, but yeah, but there was the initial promise of what it was doing. I you agree, know, that yes. was, that yeah. was the whole point of what it was doing. Now, what would have actually placated me in a lot of ways. I mean, personally, is if Adobe had said, yes, you know, this is happening with Linux. We're not going to be supporting the desktop anymore. But here is somebody who's going to be doing some work. We've lined up another, you know, an open screen developer. Or even to the point where it would have, they would have opened up how to become an open screen developer, like part of our open screen partner, I should say. Um, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of a, we've we've thrown this ball up in the air just to see if somebody will catch it amongst a select group of people. And if there's somebody outside of that who wants to catch it, they may or may not necessarily be able to come in. You know, there's no transition. It really isn't. It's a really bad transition, which tends to upset people. Whereas if they could have really managed that a lot better. Now, maybe actually, maybe I'm completely off base and they actually went out looking for somebody and there was no one out there to go, yeah, yeah, we'll do this, we'll do this. But, um, you know... That would have been that would have been really nice if that if that sort of transition had come through
1: yeah um, my my understanding is but basically that they provide this integration kit, right, but that it's targeted towards um, organizations or open screen project partners who yeah. want to basically build an air for mobile for mobile platforms based on Linux I think yeah. that's the main idea of the whole thing because obviously the new push. For air is to become some sort of a mobile multi-screen platform. At the end of the day, right? And yeah, I mean, sure, I can I can totally see that. I wonder, at the end, what you know, how much effort it really is to port it to Linux. You know, I keep thinking if you have a working Mac version, which effectively is has some Unix core underlying it. You know, it. Can't,
0: you yeah. Th- you think so? You think, but I mean, I assume. There know, are tons of like, things that are differently, like that. obviously, yeah, right?
1: Different. I mean, you know, different UI concepts, different stuff. Apple plugs on top yep. of the the um, the BSD core, so it's you know certainly not trivial. Yeah. But you know, it's probably not too far away from the Mac version, I would personally well, you'd guess.
0: think that they'd, they'd currently have a code base that could then be extended. I mean, yeah. you'd, you'd assume that. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a fun one. I mean, you know, looking through the Open Screen Project group, there isn't really one, anyone in there currently right now that I think would really pick up the reins. You've got Google, maybe, foot. I think IBM's in there. i have to actually have a look again. Um, yeah, Yeah. the thing
1: is, I mean, why should Google pick it up?
0: Because exactly. What's for Android, there is yeah.
1: an Air Runtime. That's fine, you know, sort it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Probably, probably probably the
1: best chance is Palm or a company like that, you know, like... I
0: was actually saying, like, if you would basically need to go outside, so you're looking at someone like Canonical, who runs a, the Ubuntu project, uh, maybe Red Hat, if they're looking to do stuff on, on that platform. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember if there's a company behind Fedora or not. There probably is. You know, one of those major Linux distribution companies and going to them and saying, hey, look, we've got this air runtime. It allows, you know, stuff to run everywhere. If you put some extra effort into this, you know, it can run on your platform too. Um, it,
1: Actually, that it's a bit kind of, a, of a, it's a bit of a very similar situation to the Java runtime and yeah. macOS, for example,
0: right? Yeah, yeah. yeah I actually have had that.
1: And Oracle has announced that they are not going to support, you know, JVM and and Java SDK implementation for for macOS anymore. And it's a very similar scenario, basically. And you, you know, yeah, I can see where they're coming from. Probably the the market share is tiny compared to. What they get yeah. out of Windows or I don't know Linux JVMs, yeah. And you can, I mean, in in the Java world, it's luck. You know, luckily, a bit different because we've got um, the Open JDK project, and you know, people have yeah. already picked up the ball basically and do stuff yeah. on it.
0: Well, at least there's an open source project that you're talking about, Open JDK. So yeah. you kind of have that. Whereas obviously with Air, that's not a, that's not an option. It's just not an option.
1: Yeah.
0: Um. So that makes it it makes it kind of fun.
1: Yeah. Interesting to see how that. It's going to develop in the future, I guess.
0: Yeah, so hopefully, I'm hoping, look, to be honest, I actually really, really like the Air, the Air platform. I'd really like to see it continue on the Linux platform. Um, as everyone who has ever listened to this podcast or possibly talked to me in any way, shape, or form, I really, really like Linux as a desktop OS. Um, so... I'd like to see that happen. I just think it, it possibly could have been better managed in the way the transition happened. So unfortunately, not so happy about it, but started looking already to, to start migrating some of the tools that I run on, on on air over to something else, which is unfortunate because some of them I really like. Yeah.
1: Oh, bugger.
0: Yeah. So but, uh, um,
1: yeah. I've got one more thing, actually. Um, I've made some progress on my backup and sync plannings. So, oh, yeah. Remember a while ago we talked about all the different platforms to do online backup and online syncing between different machines?
0: Sure, why not. So,
1: and <laughs> yeah, finally, I've basically I started using Dropbox a while ago. Oh yeah. Like a paid Dropbox account. Um but I sort of lost a bit of a bit trust in the ability to manage security. I don't know if you follow oh, the yeah, yeah, discussion, yeah, right? That. Yeah, So yeah. in April, basically, know oh, well, way back, they claimed, you know, no one, not even our employees, can access your data. Yeah. Saying it's AES 256 encrypted, blah, blah, blah. And in April, basically, they changed their t- terms of service and reworded it that it became obvious that their old statement was. Just not quite true. So the data is in fact encrypted on their servers, yep. but they manage the encryption keys and they have apparently policies and processes in place that their employees can't access the data or you know are not allowed to access the data of the users. Fine. Yep. But they have like a pretty much you know, a few selected employees who can access the data if um you they know if they have to for legal reasons, for example, or whatever, yep. basically. So and that causes obviously some concerns as soon as you start to store or, you know, to host at least, you know, more than totally open data on such a service, right? Because um, even if there are policies in place at Dropbox, I'm just not a big fan of, you know, having a policy in place because if you have any malicious employee or any disgruntled employee, basically, you know, they will find a way around those policies in no time. That's a no brainer, right? So I'm not that keen on that idea, so um, I decided to look for alternatives again, and then I ended up finding a company called SpiderOak, and SpiderOak is really good. Um, They are basically a backup company, or they offer a backup service that can do sync as well. Because that's that that's cool. my other, you know, my other requirement. I've got like two um laptops and a few, multi- uh, few um, a few mobile devices and I want to access th- those files from all over the place and keep them in sync if possible. Yep. And um so their backup service is really great. Their sync service is really great as well. The downside uh is Dropbox offers a LAN sync. So if you upload your data into the cloud once and then let's say you have machine A and machine B in the same local network, it will basically, if you sync machine B with your Dropbox account, just get the data locally without going out to the net from machine A. Because okay. it figures, oh, you know, that data is actually up to date on machine A. I just grab it from the local network.
0: Yeah. Which I and, think Dropbox does as well, doesn't it?
1: No, Dro- yeah, Dro- Dropbox does that yeah and Dropbox are the only ones who do that basically, so Spider Oak's not offering that yet, but apparently they're working on a solution like that yeah so yeah, I tried Spider Oak during the last week, basically, and you know uploaded a few hundred meg and synced stuff and played with it and So far, it's holding up really nicely, so probably I'm moving things over there, and they have a zero knowledge policy, basically, so yep. they do encrypt they encrypt the data on the client side. So basically the spider or client encrypts the data with my password with, you know, which I specify myself, and then the encrypted data is pushed up to the, to the cloud. So no one can, you know, read stuff and do annoying things with it, basically.
0: That's fair enough. That sounds good.
1: So yeah, that's my progress report on distributed backup and
0: distributed sync. Oh, I'm glad you found something. I'm still using CrashPlan; still very happy with it.
1: Yeah, for you know, for backup only, it's fine. It's yeah. perfect.
0: I've got a I've got a Dropbox account that I still use for just random stuff. Um, oh, I'm, finding I'm using yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm fine. I'm using Dropbox more to uh, sync stuff up to my tablet and my phone. Um, particularly nowadays, actually, for running Cold Spring documentation. <laughs> <laughs> So what I'll do is I'll I'll start i I'll actually start a Word doc in Open Office because I've got tools on my tablet for Android that allow me to edit um, edit Word docs. I'm uh, using Documents to Go. I found that one to be the best one for what I'm doing. Uh-huh. And so I'll stick that doc in my uh, in my Dropbox folder. Actually, I have a Cold Spring folder, and then I, I link that over, but it doesn't really make that much difference. Work on it, at, you know, from my computer. If I'm sitting in front of the TV, I can write stuff while I'm on my tablet. And then, you know, I've got some tools to convert that over to wiki formatting for for track. So that's generally what I use that for more than anything else. Or track, like, speaker notes, stuff like that, just getting stuff on my tablet really easily. Dropbox is really handy that way.
1: Yeah, I agree. And, I mean, I'm still, you know, even if I decide finally to move away from Dropbox for my main set of data, I'm still going to use it for, you know, that sharing aspect. And I've got a whole bunch of shared folders with other people where I just throw stuff in and then they get it right
0: away. Yep, yep, yep. yep. Cool. Cool. All right, should we get on to our, uh, we wanted to do a a main topic.
1: Yeah, we have a main topic actually after we, you know, spent like 29 (laughs) minutes bobbling away. So So, what's uh, our main topic?
0: Main topic today, I wanted to talk today about a concept called AB testing or possibly multivariant testing. Um that uh something i've been doing a lot of, of last year or so at least um pretty much for the for the client i've been working with uh, and the team that i've been working with for a while um have you done any a b testing or multivariate testing before or
1: yeah we've we've used that um in a few scenarios but we pretty much always use the the google um, yep. web optimizer or whatever yeah google Web Optimizer. Um, as, you know, a simple service to hook in some JavaScript and then get an idea which, you know, version of a page works better.
0: Yep. So for those of people who aren't familiar with what I'm talking about, um, A-B testing or multivariate testing, and some people will say the same thing and some people will say they're slightly different. I think for the sake of this talk, let's just assume they're fairly similar, Um, is basically a way of taking, say, a production system and running a test against real users to say, okay, what's better, this version or this version? Now, that may necessarily be a whole page. You might take, you know, say a landing page or something like that and compare two of them and see which one converts better. And maybe a conversion is uh, getting more people to comment on your blog post or maybe it's getting more people to buy stuff or something, people to sign up, uh, something like that. Or it might be, you know, is this color red? Blue, green on this button does that make a big difference, or anything in between? Really, you can start doing all sorts of combinations of stuff and trying to find the best combination that that works for you for for what your goals are.
1: So the classic A/B testing is basically you have two variations of a page, so that could be yep. whatever landing page one, landing page two, for example. Yep. And then you you know continue to to another process basically, and you have a look how how well the click through works, for example, from the landing page. Yep. Um multivariate testing is a bit different though, right? It's more complex. And it's not just like having page one and page two. Yeah. It's more like changing potentially multiple things in a page and then try yep. to figure out by statistical methods which, what the best combination what is what the best combination is of changes yep. you make.
0: Yep. So, yeah, um, you know, you could do something like, okay, so one combination might be left. You know, like you might have a search bar, for example, and it might be on the left, it might be on the right, it might be on the center. But then you might also, at the same time, be having a blue button, a red button, and a green button. So then, when you're doing multivariate testing, that means you have a, uh, oh god, uh, nine combinations. Yep. Math is right. Hopefully, I'm trying to remember high school statistical math. Um, so you've got left green, middle green, right green left blue, middle blue, right blue, you know, all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you've got some sort of multivariant system, you should be able to set up those combinations and it just does it all for you. So you don't have to actually have nine, you set up the three and then it combines them together. Um, so yeah, that's, that's definitely a, a split. I tend to talk about stuff as multivariant because, you know, a A-B test I tend to think of is simply just a really simple multivariant test, but you only end up with two options.
1: Yeah, I think that that's a fair call. You can pretty much say that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, now there are uh, there are a few services out there that uh, that do multivariate testing uh, most of the ones i've found previously are all client side and generally tend to be hosted uh, Kai, yeah, you mentioned one uh, Google web optimizer yep. is is one option that uh, Google offers that enables you to basically you um haven't used it in a while but you end up putting a couple of JavaScript snippets into a page and it enables you to Basically, when the customer or, customer or the user comes to the page, it looks at them, they fulfill certain parameters, maybe just to see whether or not they're in the test. Maybe you only want 50% of your users to to be part of the test or something like that. Um, and then it gives them either the control, which is basically what you have now, or some sort of variation, uh, basically by giving you certain JavaScript snippets, which then change your page. Uh, so that's that's pretty much how it works. Um, how was your experience using Google Web Optimizer? Did you like it? Did you hate it?
1: Um... I haven't used it much myself, but um one of my clients works with it quite a lot, yeah, and they are very happy with it with the outcome okay um one of the downsides was in the past that um you couldn't really get to pages behind you know behind a login easily oh yeah yeah, yeah. and that has changed now basically so oh good they have they've have modified a few things in in the g w o so that you can actually test all that stuff now. And that ah, you know, for them that works really well actually. For my client,
0: that's really good. When I was using GWO, it's it was a absolute pain to get to get working. Um, I, I I hope they changed it because it's really good deployment for us was just the biggest rigmarole ever, simply because um, there was one person who had access to the main analytics account mm-hmm. who didn't necessarily give it out to the rest of the dev team, which is fair enough, a bit of security. Um, but we needed those details to be able to see to deploy and see um, what actually had happened. Say so, you know, if you want to test it against actual prod to make sure the preview works and stuff like that. Yep. On top of that as well, yeah, you have to do this confirmation process where Google will go out to a page, grab it, and make sure the JavaScript's right so it can see what sections are on the page that you have set up. Which, again, yeah, if you're behind a login, that sucks. You have to actually save the page and do all that sort of stuff. And again, you know, if you don't have access to... If you've got like one person who's not actually the person who's writing the code and not the person who's actually doing the test, you kind of have to step them through it as a proxy, which is always just difficult because I don't necessarily know what's going on. Um, so, yeah, I, to be honest, Google Web Optimizer was like the bane of my existence for a long time and I really just couldn't stand it.
1: <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, I don't think it's that bad, actually. And I mean, I agree. It ties obviously really, really tightly into into the analytics engine. So, if you don't have access to that or easy access to the person who maintains the analytics engine, uh, yep. it is a bit tricky. Yeah, That's I agree with
0: that. Tough. And the other issue we found is we couldn't f- run multiple tests at the same time. Um, generally, it can be something you might not necessarily should be doing, but in some cases you might necessarily, especially if you've got completely disparate parts of the system where you might want to be running certain tests at the same time because they don't actually touch on each other. Um yeah, and really, really tough to get that to happen because you conversions are conversions for everything sort of thing. It's it was we we hit that inability. I believe there's some hacks around it and things like that, but it was just a bit a bit painful to use. Um so we actually we moved on to a different service, it's a paid service called Visual Web Optimizer. Um, that we actually really really liked what it did. It was really really okay. good. Again, client side. Um, but the nice thing about Visual Web Optimizer that's very different about GWO is basically you have one snippet of JavaScript that you put in the top of your page. Okay. That's it. That's your install. That's your deploy. You're done. Which is a huge difference to GWO in that every time you want to do an A/B test, you have to put these JavaScript snippets in certain places, which is a pain. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, and the nice thing about Visual Web Optimizer is it's got sort of two modes. Basically, there's one which is for uh, quote-unquote marking types, I would say, which is basically drag-and-drop, WYSIWYG interface, you can change text, all this sort of stuff, and build test itself that way. Then it's got the advanced mode for us developers where you can drop in CSS on the fly for certain variations or JavaScript on the fly, so you can change things very, very easily using code and that sort of stuff. I prefer <laughs> to definitely, obviously, do the, the latter because I think that works really, really well. Um, and yeah, it actually it actually works pretty well. There, there were... Um, we, we came up with a couple of limitations with it just in terms of um, tracking stuff like uh, certain goals. It'll only have split goals. You can't combine them. So we've got like um, if you're in a system where say, people have multiple payment gateways or something like that, each one will be probably its own separate conversion. You may be interested more in aggregate data or may not be. Um, but otherwise, it was pretty good. We found it to be quite expensive once we got into sort of, you know, if we if we're hitting sort of 10,000 visitors a day, then you start looking at you know a couple of grand a month in okay. yeah. in in, um, in sort of how much money you're spending on this. Um, but if you're you're sort of smaller than that, Visual Web Optimizer is actually it's a really nice piece of kit. Actually, I really quite like it. Um, the development team was actually quite responsive with a few things, and, and it wasn't too bad. But um, so it was that. Um, we actually looked uh, once money sort of became a big issue with Visual Web Optimizer. Um, we looked at another one called Optimizely. Uh, again, similar issue. Very similar to Visual Optimizer. Optimizely looks actually quite nice as well. Um, I'll put some links up on the on the blog post. So those are pretty much, I think, the three big ones. I don't know if if anyone who's listening has any other ones that they've used and want to, you know, put a comment on the on the podcast. I think that'd be awesome. Um, but those were the three big ones that that we came across when we were doing stuff. Um, now you, were, now this is this is an interesting one. Um, so, uh, yeah, there's, a, there's an article on Wikipedia called Why Is A-B Testing So Good or, or Discuss A-B Testing. I mean, really, A-B Testing is really there to try and get something to happen more. You know, if you're an e-commerce site trying to sell more stuff, um, there's, a, there's a bunch of people who, who do or uh, are well-known for A-B Testing. I'm just going to look at the Wikipedia article because I'm lazy like that. Um, Amazon.com is, is huge on it. Uh, Google is huge on it, Microsoft, uh, eBay does it a lot as well, you know, at any given point in time, you might be in the middle of an A-B a- test for any one of these platforms, and probably you'd never even know it, um, but that gives them a good statistical way of basically saying, yes, this here is better than that over there, which is actually pretty pretty powerful stuff. Yeah, the just-
1: interesting thing is, though, you know, obviously, you can take that to to the other extreme as well, right? So. <laughs> I mean making or getting getting a data foundation for your decisions yep. is fine but sometimes you know design or placement of certain things or even you know wording of certain information is also has an emotional factor yep and not just a oh you know I maybe maybe, you know, 100 people instead of 70 people like this wording better. Maybe, you know, because I like actually the site I'm building and I have a certain attachment to it. I want it to be this way, you know, and I think this design is actually prettier or it goes better with the concept of the site. And when we prepared this this recording, actually, I um, also had a bit of a look for you know, the other side of A-B testing, like, yep. you know, criticism or, you know, people who are not that happy with the concept of A-B testing. And I found one really interesting blog post from a guy called uh, called Douglas Bowman. And he um, used to work at Google yep. as one of their design leads, basically. And basically what he said in his blog post, and that's about two years old, from March 2009, he pretty much quit and left Google because he couldn't really live with them making decisions purely on data and not at least to a certain degree on principles and elements of design. So his, the, the perfect example he came up with basically yeah. is um, I had a recent debate over whether a border should be 3, 4, or 5 pixels weight and was asked to prove my case. I can't operate in an environment like that. I've grown tired of debating such minuscule design decisions. There are more exciting design problems in this world to tackle. Or the other example, you know, they tested 41 shades, yeah, of, shades blue of blue for like a button collar or something. And you think like we, you know, that's fine. Getting a you know getting a data foundation to help you make decisions. That's cool. Um, but maybe you know there is a bit more to to design and to building something beautiful than just data.
0: Well, let me let me put it to you this way. I mean, uh, this is an interesting one. I, I agree with you. I can see why a designer would be frustrated in that sort of environment. But at the end of the day, a business is a business
1: yeah, and it I needs agree. to make money. Yeah.
0: And if you can turn around and say, this will actually make me more money, why wouldn't you use it? Why wouldn't you test it? Why yeah. wouldn't you say, I? you know, I mean, otherwise you, you're throwing daggers in the dark and you don't know what you're going to hit.
1: I, I have to agree with, agree with that. From a business point of view, yeah. you're absolutely right, right? But from, you know, the heart of a designer, I would That's probably tough. say like, really, you know? Maybe I just want actually, to do something I, else then.
0: <laughs> see, okay, I can completely agree when it comes down to, um, so you start looking at, you know, is it three pixels wide or five pixels wide or two pixels wide and then, you know, you're getting down to that minute, minute sort of data. Um, but I, I would almost be wondering if, if you know, sort of, if you've if you've gone, you know, what I've got, you know, I'm I'm, lay, I'm laying out this particular part of the page, and I could probably go, you know, red, green, or blue, or or left aligned, right aligned. I could design this in three different ways. I would have thought it would actually be almost liberating to be able to say, you know, what I've got three different designs. I don't have to guess which one is better. I'm going to put them all mm-hmm. up there and see which one performs better, and then possibly iterate from there. I would have thought that's actually kind of liberating.
1: Yeah, I would I would think so too. Um, but, you know, those decisions... But I'm not a designer. <laughs> but, you know, the thing is, those decisions are more radical than 41 Shades of Blue. True. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. you know, do I place my navigation bar at the top, the bottom left or right? That's a fundamental layout question, yep. right? I- but 41 Shades of Blue is a bit like, oh, really people, you know, let's just take a certain shade of blue that looks nice, you know, and ignore the data.
0: But here's the interesting thing, right? Um, Sometimes that actually makes a big impact. I think there's definitely times where you want to do like big radical changes and see which one works better. I totally agree. But there are other times where it's like, you know what? Having a red button that says add to cart is better than having a gray one because people see it. And it actually makes a difference to your eventual conversions.
1: Yes, but if you have already designed, decided to have a red button, and you know you test forty-one different types of red, I doubt that you will get lots of meaningful data from that. To be honest, I
0: I would necessarily agree with that, and I I agree with that. I, I would agree with that. I think you know you could get so far down the rabbit hole, you don't know where you are. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, you're sort of like, okay, which one works better? A green button, a blue button, a red oh, button? Oh, yeah, I
1: totally agree you, with that. Yeah, that makes you so sense. You could have
0: five or six or 10 different variations. I think 41 is maybe a little crazy, especially as we all don't have... I think you could probably also say, and I'll probably backtrack that statement, Google's able to do that because they get so much traffic.
1: Oh, yeah, they can easily run, you know, statistically yeah. meaningful tests with lots of, lots of variations. So, Easy. Yeah. I
0: don't think us generally you know, with our traffic numbers, could probably do that unless you let a test run for like months, which yeah, is a bit crazy. Yep. Um, so starting out with like four or five variations, maybe even 10 or 12, um, and then maybe whittling down as the test goes on, you know, cutting out certain ones, that's that's probably also a little bit more realistic for us layman people who <laughs> don't have millions and millions of people coming through. So um, that,
1: that brings up another question though, right? Uh, and I just mentioned that, the statistical relevance of that testing, right? Yep. So how do you know, if of the 150 people that went into your test yep. and where, let's say, you know, eight uh, 90 people decided for A and 60 for B, that this is actually meaningful and this is actually not a, you know, random occurrence, yep. you know, it could just be that you ended up having 150 people over three days and, you know, just 90 weirdos ended up liking, you know, yeah, yeah, variation yeah. A better.
0: Uh, math tends to help.
1: (laughs) Math tends to help, actually. There are indeed formulas how you can calculate a confidence level of test results. And basically, and I don't want to really go deeply into that, but what it comes to...
0: But you'd like to. You
1: know, let's (laughs) Oh, come on. I mean, you know, for for the people who can't see that, we have a Google Doc. And actually, I wrote six lines of text with a few numbers about statistical methods. And Mark says... I'm going deeply into that. You should see me starting, you know, getting deeply into math. That's not six no, no, lines I know, of I know, stuff. I know
0: that's not going deeply into it. I know <laughs> you want to go deeply into it. Oh, I would it.
1: love to, but, you know, I know that I'm boring people to death. So basically what you'll find is anyway, um, that your test data distributes in a certain way, right? Yep. And there is stuff like a normal distribution. That's that bell curve type of thing. Yep. And obviously what you need to figure out is... The result you get is that, you know, close enough to a bell curve or is it totally off a bell curve and that helps you to make a decision, well, you know, do I can I have confidence in this test that actually represents um, sort of the reality or is it maybe a total one off? Yep. And you, you you can never know exactly, but you can express confidence levels. And the way you do that is basically, let's say, and, and this is specifically for an A-B test with two variations. The formula would look totally different if you have like whatever, you know, six variations okay. at a time or something. Okay. So let's say you have two pages. Page A gets um, 87 clicks. Page B gets 61 clicks. Random or relevant, what is it? So what we would do is, we would basically add those two numbers and um, come up with a value for N, which is the total number of trials, so to speak. So 87 plus 61 is 148. So 148 people tried that thing, right? And now let's have a look at the difference between those two results. So 61 and 87, the difference is 26. And we divide that by 2, which gives us 13. So we've got two figures: N is 148, and D is 13. And what we can say now is, if D square is larger than n, then this whole thing is reasonably statistically relevant. D square is uh, 169. let's you know, 13 times 13 that's larger than the 148 we got from the number of trials so what we can say is yep this is with about 95 96% confidence statistically relevant and the criteria gets a bit you know steeper and more difficult to achieve if you wanted for example 99% confidence yep so you could basically come up with the same formula but then d square would have to be larger than about 1.6 or 1.7 times n, and for example, with those results, that would be not the case. How yep. can you fix that? Run more tests. That's yep. the easiest way. You know, the more data you gather and the more trials people make, the m- automatically the more relevant, um, you know, your test results become, and the more easier it is to get a high level of confidence. One important thing, though, that you know, 96 percent level of confidence, or even 99, doesn't mean that, you know, you are 99% right in, in certain way. It's basically a, a, sc- a scale which tells you, you know, in 99% of those cases where you would get that exa- that, that, that distribution, you actually can trust that distribution to be meaningful and not random and that's you know it's basically you test some sort of a an assumption yep. it gives you a success or failure of the rate of that of that assumption pretty much mm-hmm. and that's quite interesting i mean you know you get a, you end up having having um typically confidence levels you want to test against of 90 95 and 99% that's usually how people do that depending on your criteria and then um in that case it's really easy because you've got a b testing with basically let's say two variants so you have yep. one degree of freedom, but all of a sudden, if you have, let's say, six or seven degrees of freedom or 41, for example, then your formula becomes much, much more complex. And also it gets much harder to achieve a high confidence level because, you know, you, you need to run lots and lots of, of tests to get one of the variations to really stick out in, in a certain way.
0: Yeah. That's fair enough. I think you'll find that a, a lot of A-B testing suites or multivariant testing suites will enable you to disable like failing tests, so it becomes easier to, to show a winner. So if you've got a certain number that are really obviously lagging behind, you can just go, you know what, let's get rid of that one. That's not that's not doing well at all. So we'll move on to, to getting less and less and less variations coming through, so it makes that a little bit easier.
1: Yeah, but that's it's still interesting, right? I mean, yeah. again, it's it's a game of big numbers. If you have, let's say you have something like 10 tests, I mean, 10 people clicked, right? And you yep. end up having something like nine people clicked on one thing, one on the other. You look at the numbers and you think, oh, you know, it's nine to one. Wow. That's a clear winner. It yep. doesn't tell you anything, you know? No. It's <laughs> like, cause you've got a small sample. The absolute numbers are not relevant at all, basically. And another thing I always find with statistics and probability, the human mind has a tendency to not get it right. Yeah, In pretty much anything, you know, it's, the human mind is not made to, to understand statistics and to interpret statistics well. It's just not. Okay. It's just not true, basically. And you know, you see that with basic stuff like you know that quiz game thing where you have three doors and a goat behind one door, and you know, like we have to pick a door and avoid the goat and win the car stuff type of thing.
0: What that's, shows are you watching?
1: <laughs> that's a that's a very oh, dude, seriously, that's a very very well known you know math or probability statistics problem where the human mind is totally misled by you know okay. by probability i think we need to have a talk about that at some stage but not today maybe
0: <laughs> sure let's talk about goats behind doors that sounds like i a have
1: actually thing. A, a whole book on that topic seriously
0: oh god you're such a math nerd <laughs>
1: yeah it doesn't matter so you know <laughs> but what I'm, what i'm saying is the human mind is not good with probability and statistics. And okay. that's, that's, you know, that's why I think looking at those absolute numbers is never really helpful. It's, it's way more important from a tools point of view, I think, that a tool gives you those confidence levels by, you know, using statistical means and statistical methods proper, properly.
0: Well, funny you should say that, Kai, because I think I might have a project for you. <laughs>
1: yeah, I have. <laughs> I thought something like that would be coming, actually. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think you've managed to dig yourself a nice little hole and put yourself in it, because I'm now going to take advantage. Um, so, the, the one of the reasons we want to talk about A-B testing today is I wanted to talk about a new open source project that I'm working on with a couple of other people. Can, um, I, can
1: I ask a question before we actually you know talk deeper about that project? Is yep. that... Did you feel the urge to start something else because Adobe took away more of your ColdFusion projects for ColdFusion? Well, I have to stay
0: ahead of the curve. I mean, you know, if they keep grabbing one every release, I need to make sure that I keep pumping them out. Otherwise, you know, if I stop with open source projects, what are they going to put in the product?
1: So that means in ColdFusion 11 or ColdFusion 12, we'll see that project, what you're doing now, like, you know, ColdFusion A-B testing or something like that?
0: Maybe, I mean, you know, I'd, like, I, I just think that the project might, you know, Cold Fusion might actually just be like, okay, I don't know what to do now if Mark's not going to make any more projects. I just, we've got nowhere else to go. So I don't want that to happen. I yeah, mean, that
1: total, would be totally bad. fair enough. <laughs> okay, like, let's talk about your project.
0: Okay, I was actually going to say, I was, we were joking last night that, uh, at, the, at our, our local user group meeting that uh, oh, uh, one, of, one of the guys there was saying, you need to write an open source project that's just like really bad so they'll never steal it. Like, CF crashed my server. And they'll be like, ha-ha, you can't take that now. <laughs> Basically, just an infinite loop. That's all it is. <laughs> okay, but uh, yeah, back to what I was talking about before. So, yeah, uh, two guys that I work with, uh, Ezra Parker. Um, many people would probably know him from Model Glue fame. Um, he's also been around the chaps helping out with, like, the Maxon conference and things like that. And uh, one of the other guys that may not be necessarily well-known, uh, Josh Wines, is also a guy that I work with, um, the three of us, uh, and, and with, with much kudos to our client as well, basically went, okay, we need we actually need a server-side AB or multivariant testing suite for ColdFusion, um, both to enable us to, uh, to do a whole bunch of stuff in terms of making deploys and stuff easier, but also as a cost issue, and um, and also allowing us to do some other fun stuff. Uh, there are there are other server-side multivariant testing tools for other languages. I think there's one for uh I think it's now I'm completely blanked. It's either Ruby or it's PHP, and there's probably one for both of them that I can't remember the names of off the top of my head. Um but the project name is Squabble which was actually Josh's idea. I'm going to give credit at his feet. Um, basically, yeah, you're having an argument, and let's see which one wins. Uh, you can find it if you're looking for it. I'll put the link up. It's actually, uh, I've started moving some stuff over to GitHub, and we started using GitHub for it. GitHub's awesome. I wish I'd actually picked it up earlier. Um, so what's actually neat about Squabble is, it, rather than being a client-side solution, it's actually server-side, which has some pros and some cons, and I think that at the end of the day, we came up with um, uh, more pros than we had up with cons. But basically, uh, it's a set of custom tags for doing AB or multivariant testing. Um, you set up sections and combinations in it, and then it basically works out all the different combinations for you. Uh, it has a series of APIs that you can do some more advanced AB testing with as well, or more interesting stuff as well. Uh, and some it comes with some sample reporting, that we did out of the box right now, we're just doing numerically reporting. Kai, if you wanted to come on and help us do some confidence levels, that would be kind of neat. <laughs> I'm just saying it's an interesting math project. You might be keen.
1: Yeah, um, I might have a look into really that. It's
0: really cool to have that sort of stuff in the project um, and that sort of stuff. So, it's it's actually working for us, I think, really, really well. Um, so, the, the, I'll go through the pros and cons I've written through here because we've over, over the stuff like uh, Google Web Optimizer and Visual Web Optimizer and stuff like that. Um, for us, it's a lot easier to deploy. I think that's probably more for like GWO, like Google Web Optimizer. Visual Web Optimizer, you've only got the single snippet, so it's a lot of, that's actually not too bad. You can have multiple logins to log in, and you can test on multiple platforms. So that's actually quite easy to deploy, but definitely much easier to deploy than Google Web Optimizer. You're pushing up code like you would normally. Boom, you're done. That simple. Um and actually, almost be willing to say it's actually even easier to set up your tests and stuff like that than it would be in even something like Visual Web Optimizer. Because normally, what you have to do with a client-side solution is have everything on the page in HTML and then hide and show things with CSS or yeah. JavaScript. Um, whereas with uh, Squabble, it's it's server-side, so it either just renders or it doesn't. It's either it, you know there's no there's no hidden elements, there's nothing like that. It's either there, or it's not. Which actually makes things pretty straightforward, you're not dabbling in like three different tools. You just go, nah, either show this or don't. You know, so if you want an inline, you know, CSS block or something like that to render one of your tests, it just becomes part of what's inside your custom tag. Very, very simple. Mm -hmm. Um, there's no client side slowdown, which is really nice. You know, so you're not you're not necessarily beholden to a CDN you can't control. Um, so a lot of the time, for example, you know, if you've read any of the stuff about client-side performance, you won't have, you know, caching stuff on the, on the JS or, or even maybe possibly GZIP on the JS that's coming from this third party because you've got no control over it. And they may have very good reasons for doing that, but that can be a bit of an issue. Um, we've definitely seen some slowdown on the client side for these third parties because they have to do so much work and, you know, it's on a CDN, and you can't control and you don't know where it is and all that sort of stuff. Um, the other big pro that we found that's been really, really interesting is we can now do like deep AB testing of business logic within our application because we've got the API, we can actually say, you know, do this that way or do the other thing that way. I'm trying to give a good example that I can actually use. Um, so, you know, um, what's a good example I'm trying to think rather than just being like, is this button blue is it red is it green you could actually do things like you know send through this sort of workflow rather than this sort of workflow um maybe use this sort of validation you know how strong you know maybe you're you're checking for signups for example and you might want to test you know how strong a password do you want people to be required by you know does that actually change signups if you make it more difficult. Now, I would assume the answer would be yes, but maybe it isn't. Maybe people have more confidence because of that. So you can actually start doing testing that way where you can actually be like, okay, let's let's get down to some, some real server-side business logic that we want to test against. That's really hard to do when you're doing everything client-side. Uh, that's, that can be really difficult or if not, actually completely impossible. So
1: I agree. I mean, it's certainly possible to do some of those things at least. Yeah. But it would be hard because you end up basically linking, page, linking new pages together in yeah. different ways. And it's hard to get, for example, into a CFC, obviously.
0: Yeah. Whereas now with Scrobble, you can be like, well, you know, in that sort of situation, is, you can actually ask it through the API. Is this the active combination for this user? You know, are they getting, you know, a, a low secure password or a high secure password? You know, and then we can do our validation based on that. So that's really cool.
1: So yeah. question on that quickly. Um, how does it work in practice though, right? I mean, you're writing your code yep. and you have a code base of CFCs and business logic or however people do that, yep. basically. So does it mean your Squabble API code is embedded in your business logic?
0: It would have to be for that sort of stuff. And then,
1: I mean, how, how do you do it practically? Do you remove it afterwards when your test is yep. done or do you leave it yep. in and just comment it like some people do with you know logging stuff? Or would would there be maybe a case for for a thing like different log levels? You know, like debug, warning.
0: I don't think about different log levels because once you're done with a test, you tend to just – you're done with a test. You know, you might do some more iterations. But if you've got like a winner, you tend to stick with that winner and then maybe tweak from there. Um, It really depends, I guess, on your testing strategy as well, I would say. Generally, I think – Pragmatically, you know, we, we tend, there's a, there's a squabble.cfc which has some other CFCs behind it. Um, we tend to take a dirty pragmatic approach sometimes where we've just got an application.squabble and we'll just access that directly from wherever just mm-hmm. because it's simple and it's easy and we don't need to do much, um, much plumbing work. If you wanted to be more academic about it, you know, we could put it in Cold Spring and make sure it's injected into set stuff. But we're just like, you know what, it's going to be there for like a week or maybe two depending on how the statistics play out. And then at the end, we're just going to rip it out again afterwards once we've got our winner. So we can be a bit dirty about it. We don't mind that too much. Um, so that's generally how it works. Generally, if, you, yeah, if you're if you doing that sort of deep business process sort of stuff. Um, on the client side, we tend to use the custom tags because that makes life really easy. And again, yeah, once you have a winner, you tend to rip it out. Um, okay. I often find what happens is, is on your tests, you'll have sort of inline CSS. Um, maybe some inline JavaScript for each of your tests so that they can render nicely. And then when you have your winner, that's when you take your CSS, you put that in your actual style sheet that you're using across your site and you know all that sort of stuff and make sure you do all the right CDN sort of things and all that sort of stuff. So that's, that's tend to be the process we tend to take with it, which is quite nice. Um, any more questions?
1: No, that that was you know what I was just wondering. Yeah, how, yeah. How, how it in practical life. The, what, what I can see be difficult though with a solution like that is it requires actually a developer to implement the testing
0: yes yes it does that
1: that can be a good thing but in some organizations that might actually be some sort of a deal breaker as well
0: that's true that is true Um, yeah so if you've got marketing people who are doing the uh, visual tests um, yeah that's that's definitely an issue yeah Uh, I think maybe the developers might like that a bit more because they don't have to deploy code um, Mm -hmm. or specific of code. I mean, if you're using something like Visual Web Optimizer or Optimizely, where you've only got the single snippet, they can control everything from their end from their web interface, which is really nice. It is really nice. Um, this is a bit more involved. But if you're a developer trying to do more complex things and complex combinations, um, or possibly even just trying to save some money, um, if you're using a commercial a commercial piece of software, I think we found this to be really useful. But we're we're a developer originally led project, so that's kind of kind of where we're coming from. Yeah. Um, there are some cons with Squabble. I will definitely admit to that in terms of client-side. One thing client-side stuff can do that server-side really can't is detect whether cookies are enabled. Um,
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Yep. So basically, if you don't have cookies enabled and you come to something that's using Squabble, you're going to get a different variation each time. <laughs> it's going to rotate through it. Um, and that's just kind of it. There's no other way around that. There's, there's no real way of saying, okay, yep, this person has cookies or don't they? Which is unfortunate. Um, but... Uh, you know, one could also, I mean, I put this up to, uh, I think, a mailing list that I chatted on and basically the consensus was if you're not using cookies on the internet, you sh- you're an idiot and you should be anyway. Um, you should expect things to break.
1: And, and, you know, quite realistically, a lot of, or actually most of the sites yeah. today it wouldn't work without cookies anyway. I mean, you will be hardly be able to see anything without cookies. Yeah,
0: yeah. The other con that we're, we're kind of working through at the moment actually and we've got some ways to fix around is basically if you want to turn off a test, say something's like you've got an A-B test and the B is performing really, really purely, poorly and you're like, nah, I don't want this anymore, you actually have to deploy code to get rid of it. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually just implemented an API that just says disable test. Um, so A, that becomes a little bit easier to deploy but B, you could actually in theory put up a web interface to say disable this test and you could click a button and do it. Um, so actually, the way it's written now, if the application restarts, this test would restart again because it's not actually stored in memory in in a database that way. But yeah. so that's that's definitely something else as well, and maybe something we look at look at fixing going forward. But overall, we've been we've been really happy with it. It's you know still very much in, in its infancy stage, and we're kind of mucking around with it all over the shop. Um, but definitely open to to play around with it. Setting it up is really straightforward. Um, I'm actually going to click the link so. There's there's an example that comes along with it that does a multivariant test that's sitting in it that you could walk through in about two seconds and, and understand how to work it. Um I'm just having a look at the code right now. Basically, you set up um you set up a squabble.cfc in your application.cfc. Uh we just went with a simple convention to get started. So there's a basically you say application.squabble and you create squabble. Um you set up some test configurations with sections and combinations. So you may have one section, you have multiple. So you can either have, you know, left, right, center, and then another section would be, you know, blue, red, green. Yeah. Um, you register it as a test, and you're pretty much on your way. That's, I mean, that's, that's pretty much it. You have stuff in there for being able to do percentage of visitors, that sort of stuff. Um, and then whenever you want to say, okay, this is a conversion, so we've actually succeeded in whatever we want, there's either a tag or you can make an API call saying convert and you just give it the test name, and you say what the conversion name is. Mm -hmm. Uh, Squabble does some interesting stuff that uh, actually Visual Web Optimizer does this. I don't know if Optimizely does or GWO does, where we'll also track things like we'll do revenue conversion as well. So it also becomes a question of... um, We actually call it... What do we call it now? Actually, I'll look at my API so that I can remember what we call it. It's actually a bit general. Um, Basically, so not only is it a question of um, whether something converted but by how much it converted, if that makes sense.
1: That makes perfect sense. And that actually becomes really, really interesting. Because as soon as you do that, those statistical methods get... change dramatically.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, uh, we basically do, okay. Um, yeah, so VWO does, um, they call it revenue conversion. We've basically just called it uh, value because it's completely generic. So if you're doing, say, an e-commerce site, you know, you can be tracking how much profit you make on each Mm -hmm. order. So you may find, you know, given certain scenarios that people are buying more stuff, but it's all lower margin stuff. And that's not necessarily a good thing. Or maybe they're buying less stuff, but it's, it's, um, it's higher margin stuff. You know, that's really kind of interesting too. We also look at, um, we've done value and we've also done units. So again, a lot of the stuff I do, uh, the work I do right now is pretty much e-commerce focused. So, you know, also looking at how many items are being bought, which actually becomes some interesting statistical models where you can actually say, okay, value per unit. What's your average value per unit when you're actually doing stuff? Now this is actually kind of cool. You know, maybe you're doing you know a subscription based service. You know, are people signing up for three months, six months, or twelve months? Or not, on know.
1: which level? You know, do they sign yeah. up on whatever bronze, yep. silver, gold, platinum level? For different, exactly. Different yeah.
0: You know, or anything like that. You know, you could you could even go as far as being like, okay, I want more comments on my blog. Maybe you don't just want more comments; you want either bigger or smaller. How many lines of <laughs> comments have you got? Yep. So that that sort of stuff you, we check along as well, um, and and we push out some we push out some reporting on on all that sort of stuff as best we can now. I think uh, our team probably is lacking the mathematic- math- mathematical skills of Kajkonek. I think he could come on board and help us out a lot. But um,
1: yeah, I heard that the first time already. <laughs> you didn't have to repeat it. I might have a look that's into right.
0: it. <laughs> I'm sure you'd find it an interesting challenge. But it's um, yeah, it's working really, really well for us actually. And I mean, right now, basically we do a report, we show all the numbers, I and mean, we have a clear leader. And in several different fields, we're basically like, okay, yeah, that's that's the one we want for right now. But yeah, it would be really nice to have some confidence numbers. Again, nudge nudge, pod pod. Um, but yeah, it's it's pretty cool. I need to actually write some blog posts about it and, and stuff like that. But it's um, yeah, the three of us have just been running with it and and working on it. It's been it's been lots of fun and kind of each of us plugging away on a different bit of it as we need different bits for uh, for each thing. Um, it's got built-in sort of previewing, which everyone else has as well. So you know, there's some keys you just plunk in the URL and it just. You know, you can see different values very, very easily. So it's it's pretty cool. We're actually, yeah, it's been a really fun little project to work on. It's you know, it's not insanely complex, but it's uh, it's good fun. It's oh, good it's fun. It's really
1: interesting. I'm just thinking about what Adobe will name the tag. You know, will it be CFAB oh. testing or CF squabble?
0: <laughs> well, I don't think they'll call it CF squabble because you know, I think they need something a little bit more uh,
1: enterprise. Uh,
0: Enterprisey, or at least a bit more clear, but because you know, project you can name maybe it what you like, it align.
1: would be CF multivariate
0: or something, something like that. that. I could see that, um, but yeah, if you're interested in stuff like that, um, I'll put the link to uh, the GitHub page, or you can probably even search for my name on GitHub and you probably find it pretty quickly. Um, and uh, yeah, come and have a look, come and have a play. Definitely love contribution, you know, that's great stuff, so uh, you know feel free to grab the code and have a look. It's, you know, the examples there, again, with all open source projects, documentation is always an issue, but we've got the generated documentation from Cold Doc, so that's there. There's an example there that shows you basically how to set up a, a test, which is really, really simple. So very easy to pick up and run with.
1: Does it actually support the major databases, or do I have to run with whatever MySQL Right now, it's Postgres
0: MySQL, um, and we've actually written some of our reporting specifically for MySQL, but... I think you could probably change it quite easily if you needed to. Um,
1: yeah, I'm just thinking, you know, like a lot of people would yeah. probably run MS SQL Server, I think.
0: Yeah, um, the tables for Scrubble are not particularly complicated. Um, where I think you'd probably end up having a bit of trouble is, what did we do? We've, the way we did reporting data, we ended up having to do some fun stuff to get um, to get our reporting to happen. Uh, to basically show different, all the variations. And I can't remember. what I'm just actually looking for the code. Um, but think we could actually make some small changes to how the data is structured to uh, to take care of that as well. So, yeah, if you're looking for more database support, then uh, come on board and give it a crack. Uh, we definitely built it with that sort of stuff in mind so that it could be ported quite easily. And the nice thing about Scobble this is actually something I really like as well, uh, as, a, as a big pro, the data is yours. Yeah, you're not, you're not beholden on a third party to say, you know what, I need this sort of report or this sort of extra information to come out. The data is yours. It's all there. It's there for you. You can do what you like with it. Um, we basically track, you know, what visitors come in, you know, what combination they had and then whether they convert or not. So it's completely up to you to be able to pull out whatever data you want, uh, which is, can be really, really, really useful.
1: Yeah, I agree.
0: So yeah, Cool. I'm actually looking yeah we do some stuff with group concat in, in in MySQL that may possibly be a little bit easier to do if we stored data a little bit differently but uh, yeah yeah Lost.
1: but I mean I'm pretty sure like you know you can fix that in other databases quite easily if you, yeah. you know or you know rewrite the queries
0: yeah so not not the end of the world and it wouldn't be impossible to do either so lots of fun but yeah really yeah it's been been a fun little project to work on and um, the guys that basically contributors right now the guys I work with and we just use it we use it pretty much every day to do stuff with it so okay, yeah cool. please come check it out
1: oh, I definitely will sweet so we're actually talking already one hour thirteen I think we should actually come to you know, okay. a bit of a, an end soon we've got two events to announce um, oh, yeah? one is the Sydney Adobe platform users group Um, And Chris sent me that. It's actually next Monday on the 27th. They've got their uh, monthly meeting, and it is about called Fusion Builder 2. Ah, very nice. And the meeting is hosted at Rocket Boots, and they are giving away um, a software package of value up to US dollars, 2,100. Ooh. Uh, If you are eligible to win, blah, 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 whatever the... Detailed conditions are that's fine. You know, but they do a raffle, so you can win something. Go there. And the other thing, also next week, is the Wellington Creative Speed User Group. They've got their monthly meeting on Tuesday the twenty eighth. And their meeting is about Adobe Camera RAW, which is, you know, one of those tools. I know it exists, but I probably have never ever opened it before in my life.
0: What does it do? I don't even know.
1: It's a tool to manipulate to manipulate images when you're a photographer, basically. Okay. Before you know, before it even goes to Photoshop, you take your raw image and you do all sorts of magic stuff to make them look awesome, and then you do the fine tuning in Photoshop. Okay. And the the presenter is actually um, a friend of mine, and she's a wedding photographer, and she's doing that type of stuff all the time, and she's really really good at it. So, yep, two very interesting events next week. Cold Fusion Builder 2 in Sydney and Adobe Camera Raw in um, Wellington.
0: Fair enough. Cool. Um, I think that's kind of it. I think that's really all we've got.
1: It is. The Wonderful. I can't believe that we got through really all our topics. We did? Unbelievable. Awesome. There we go. Cool. So, um, when are we back the next time? In about two weeks or so,
0: I guess. Something like that. Yeah. Why not?
1: And we need to come up with, you know, a little cake or something for the tenth recording.
0: The cake is a lie, Kai. The cake is a lie. What do you mean? <laughs> oh, and you've never played Portal. No. Oh my god. How do you? How do you? Oh, never mind.
1: Yeah, I know. Some. I have some some friends actually who basically at some stage said they are going to split or unfriend everyone who doesn't play portal and it's like yeah whatever you know <laughs> sorry
0: oh uh, well i guess it my
1: was... my day is just so so it's so many hours and you know i play, spend a lot of time playing spiral knights for example
0: which <laughs> is <laughs> totally my fault
1: <laughs> yeah exactly
0: actually i've got whole new i've got all new gear for that at the moment so i'll have to get it on and play again point soon
1: ah, interesting yeah i've I need to get a few more things up to uh, three stars, and then I need to get a few more things up to four stars.
0: <laughs> wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Okay, so uh, this probably concludes episode of uh, another two developers down under. Uh, to reiterate again, Kai, uh, contact details for you: what's your website? What's your Twitter? What's your blog? Uh, my
1: blog is bloginblack.de. My Twitter name is Agent K, and my you know business work website is Ventigo. HyphenCreative.co.nz.
0: wonderful um, people are looking for me I'm trying really hard I'm about 50 people off a thousand followers on Twitter um, so please follow me at twitter.com slash neurotic um, and if you want to read any of my blog posts at www.compoundtheory.com um, and I think that pretty much concludes another episode of Two Developers Down Under
1: I agree and we'll talk to you again in a few weeks speak to you later bye bye